You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. Um, I don't know about you, but I, uh, I really, really love a great mystery. Um, I've read a few, but I'm not a really big non-fiction uh, reader, so... For me, it's all about, I love sitting in a movie, shoving my face full of milk duds and trying to figure out who did it and how did they pull it off? Uh, I I love wrestling with that. Um, I will confess to you that this winter, our family went to see the murder on the Orient Express. I didn't see that coming. That totally got me. Um, Didn't figure it out at all. I was guessing totally wrong. Uh, But the catch with mysteries is, at least for me, the only mystery that we really, really love is the one that is finally, ultimately solved. Those are the ones that that we like because we want the criminal caught. We want the plot exposed. And the reason for this is we want to know how did it happen. We want to know what really, really took place. A mystery, by definition is something that is difficult or even impossible to fully explain or understand. With that, I would say to you that the greatest mystery um, ever known wasn't made up. It was actually promised and foretold. And this morning, Paul is going to proclaim... Um, that that mystery has not only been solved, but that it's been fully laid bare for the whole world to see, hear, and to declare. That it has changed lives, is still changing lives, and will forever change lives. Before we dive into Paul's letter to the Colossians, let's lay a little bit of groundwork here. Um, A couple of things to remind ourselves of that Jesus said and that Paul said. First of all, in Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20, we have what we refer to as the Great Commission. Jesus came to his disciples and he said, um, as he was about to leave them soon, he said, go therefore into all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching those to obey what I have commanded. Jesus said to go. Now, was he talking to somebody who might feel the call of a missionary, if you will, um, to sell everything they own, go halfway around the world to India or Rwanda or somewhere like this and share the gospel. Absolutely he was. But Jesus, the word that he uses here, go, it's actually a passive word. So it's much better translated as you go. Jesus could very well be saying, hey, this week, as you go to work, This week, as you go to school, this week, as you go to practice, this week, as you meet with your friends, this week, as you go, make disciples in the everyday of life, be leading and pointing other people to Jesus. So there's something required of us here. Well, then if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 If you've been in church for any length of time, you may have very well heard a sermon preached on this verse. Maybe you learned it at some point in life. But the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. We like that verse. That's good stuff. That's the good news of the gospel. But the verses that immediately follow it are often neglected. Look at verse 18 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Paul says, all of this is from God, who through Christ through, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Again, great good news there, but you've got to keep reading. He reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So Jesus said, there's something required of you. As you go, you need to lead others and point others to follow me. Well, Paul says here, here's the requirement. Because you have been reconciled back to the Father, you have now become ministers of reconciliation. We've said this before, we will say it again. God saved us to send us. We are saved and given the mission uh, of taking the gospel that saved us to those who have not yet heard it or believed it. So now, come into Paul's letter to the Colossians. Here's the Apostle Paul, who himself has been radically saved by this gospel. He starts this letter off by proclaiming what God has done in and through Christ. He then expounds on who Christ is and shifts to talking about who we once were, but now who we have become in Christ. And as he makes these assertions about the hope of the gospel, he's now going to move, we're going to see him this morning, move to talking about his ministry to the church. Um, And as he talks about his ministry, he's going to share the attitude that he has. He's going to share the charge or the mission given to him, his purpose and devotion and all these things. And my prayer for us this morning is that we will clearly see that the ministry that Paul writes to the Colossians about that God has laid on him has now been given to each of us as Jesus' followers. So look with me in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Colossians 1, 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So Paul begins by talking about his sufferings, but he says something here that's not only peculiar, he says something that has been controversial for the last 2,000 years, and what did Paul really, really mean? Go back with me to verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh... I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. The argument has been, has Paul saying here that there was something lacking in Christ's afflictions, as if Jesus didn't suffer enough, or maybe his suffering didn't accomplish 
what we believe that it did. No, that is not what Paul is saying at all. What Paul is saying is compared to Christ's afflictions, my sufferings will never fully equate to that. My sufferings, they will never equate to what Christ suffered for me. However, that being said, my sufferings have allowed me to share in living for Christ's glory, for the sake of his body, the church. What Paul tells us here is that when we suffer for the sake of Christ, we are drawn closer to the heart of Christ. When you and I, if we suffer on any level for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, for the glory of his name, we are drawn closer to him as this happens. If you're ridiculed, For the sake of the gospel, for sharing the gospel, you will be drawn close to the one who himself is the gospel. If if you and I walk through persecution for exalting the name of Jesus Christ, we will see even more clearly and deeply the hope and the joy and the peace and the security of that great name being written over our lives. So, Paul tells the Colossians that his sufferings have brought him closer to Christ and have brought Christ to them through him. What Paul is saying here, friends, is even though he's never met these folks face to face, if my sufferings had to take place in order for you to hear and receive the gospel, praise God. Bring it on. I will walk through anything that you might come to know Christ. Kent Hughes, um, in his commentary on Colossians, he puts it this way. The gospel has always spread through missionary hardship. But there's something more here, and it's far more subtle. It's this. Believers grow through personal suffering. And the good that they receive flows to others, thus edifying the church. When we suffer for the sake of Christ and his church, we are drawn closer to him. And so in the midst of this, Paul shares what his attitude is in walking through this. Did you see what his attitude is? Go back to verse 24. He says it very first thing. Now I rejoice. Praise God for my sufferings because of what they have done, because of what God has done through them. Paul's attitude is rejoicing. Well, now he talks about his charge or his mission, if you will. Look at verse 27. To them, the saints, to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul says that his mission that he's been given is to proclaim this great mystery, to warn everyone, to teach everyone. That's the mission. But what's the message? This mystery. 
Well, Paul says in verse 27 that this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Pay attention to this. Paul has said in verse 26, he's already referred to the mystery hidden for ages and generations. Now he talks about the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Shortly, we're going to hear him say again, he's going to refer to the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So the question really becomes, what's so dad blame mysterious? What's the great mystery that's going on here? Because Paul has already conveyed that he, and as a result, us, have been made stewards of this mystery, to make it known, if you will. Well, we can't make it known if we don't know what it is. What is this mystery? Well, let me take a couple minutes and share it with you. Number one, because I don't think we can ever hear this too many times. Number two, I will never grow tired of saying it and sharing it. Let's start at the beginning. God created. And of all the things that he created, no, you and I, we may not have physically been there at the time, but of all the things that God created, God loved us most. And we rebelled against him. God knew this would happen. And so God had a plan. And God came to a man by the name of Abram and he said, Abram, because of your faith, because of your faith in me, Abram, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And here's what I'm going to promise you. First of all, I'm going to make your name great. In fact, I'm going to change it. Your name is now Abraham. I'm going to make your name great. And Abraham, if you look up at the stars in the heavens, if you can even begin to try and count them, I wouldn't do it because you'll be here a while. You will have more descendants than the stars in the universe. And I'm going to take you to a place. I'm going to deliver you to a place physically and spiritually where you will never be in need again. I'm going to do this through you, Abraham. But Abraham died. Well, God passed that covenant along from Abraham to his son, Isaac. And he passed it from Isaac to Isaac's son, Jacob. And then it moved from Jacob to his 12 sons that we know as the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the midst of the story of Jacob's sons, we know that because of something happened with Joseph, they all wind up in Egypt, which at first is great. The problem is, over the course of 60, 70, 80 years, they go from being celebrated to being slaves. And after several hundred years of this, God finally says, I've had enough. I've heard the cries of my people. And he comes to a man named Moses and says, Moses, I know you think you're old. I know you think you can't talk real good, but you're going to deliver my people. And he sends Moses back into Egypt and as we have seen over the last month or so, as we were walking through Exodus, God uses Moses to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt and into the wilderness where God's desire and his intent and his plan is to deliver them into that land that he promised Abraham. But we get a little sidetracked because of their disobedience 
and because of their ignorance and because of their futility in all things, they get delayed a little bit. And for 40 years, they keep moving toward the promised land, but they don't get to go in yet. Well, in the midst of all of this happening, God gives them the law. And the law seems and feels like a very, very ridiculously heavy burden at first. And it is, but it's actually a blessing. And the reason that it's a blessing is because it's ultimately and clearly going to show them that they on their own will never be able to live up to God's righteous standard of holiness. They will never be able to do it. God gives them the law. And then he says, and you must atone for your sins. And the way that you will atone for your sins is through the blood of a lamb. And the reason for this is that sin requires blood atonement. God is saying something here. But this goes on and on. And while they're in the wilderness, God gives them the sacrificial system. And God gives them prophets to constantly remind them of these things. And as they're in the wilderness, they build and set up this moving tabernacle so that the presence of God is always with them. And during this time, they're continually taught that the God of Israel is actually the God of all mankind. And that there's coming a day when this is not just going to be an Israelite thing or a Hebrew thing or a Jewish thing, but this is going to be a worldwide, global, all-mankind thing that God, through them, is going to bring a Savior who will be for everyone. But this happened year after year, year after year, over and over and over, and it was never going to be enough. And you and I now know that God sent his son, the Lamb of God, to die on the cross to atone for our sins once and for all and that Jesus rose from the dead that we might have life. Well, Peter stands up at Pentecost and filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter begins declaring, the words of the prophet Joel. And he begins quoting King David and explaining how all of this is unfolded. I'd like for you to look with me for a few minutes in Acts chapter 2. Because remember, God has said, this is not just going to be a Jewish thing, an Israelite thing. Peter stands up at Pentecost in Acts 2 verse 22. And as the Holy Spirit has fallen on the apostles and some of the believers, the 3,000 people gathered at Pentecost are wondering what in the world is wrong with these people. Well, Peter begins explaining to them what is happening. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
David says concerning him in Psalm 16. So what Peter is saying here is, before Jesus ever came, David was telling you what he was going to do. David declared, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What are we to do, Peter? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So praise God, over 3,000 people are saved, the Holy Spirit falls, and the New Testament church begins. But guess what? These are all Jews. What about that global, worldwide, all-mankind deal? Well, all you got to do is get about eight more chapters in. And God wakes Peter up in the middle of the night and says, Peter, you're to go find a man named Cornelius. He's waiting to hear who I am. And Cornelius is a Gentile. And his whole family gets saved. And right there, God kicks the doorway open for the gospel to move over all of the earth to all mankind. And this is why the Apostle Paul declares in Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, the temple is no longer this tent out in the wilderness. It's no longer this place in Jerusalem. But the people have, of God have become the dwelling place of God. So friends, here's what you and I have to grasp. This is the great mystery, not just that Christ has come, but Paul says here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, here's the great mystery. It is Christ 
in you the hope of glory. Jesus Christ has not just come to save us, but to indwell us. The God of all creation has pursued, redeemed, saved, and indwells the lives of his people. And he accomplished this through the life, death, and resurrection of his own son. And Paul says here in verse 28, this we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. And for this toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Sometimes you you get done with a sentence from Paul and you just want to go, man, that's something else. And you get done with Colossians chapter one and you realize Paul's not done. There's more. Look at chapter two, verse one. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. And here is what I am struggling and praying on your behalf, that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And friends, I am praying this for you. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order in the firmness of your faith in Christ. How do we further grasp this great mystery? Paul says, through the wisdom and knowledge of God. Through the wisdom and knowledge of Christ. Well, how does this knowledge of Christ come? Here's a big kicker. Paul says that it comes through brotherly love in the church. Go back with me. Verse 2. Paul, Paul is praying for them and for us that our hearts may be knit together in order that, so that we would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Friends, the depth of our understanding is directly impacted by the binding of our hearts and lives together. In other words, you and I cannot say, I love Jesus and not love his church. Because Paul is saying, you will know Christ more. You will hunger for Christ more. You will walk in Christ more when you walk with my people. Because you will see me in them and they will see me in you. We can't love Jesus and not love his church. F.F. Bruce says, 
Paul emphasizes the, that the revelation of God cannot be properly and fully known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within the Christian community. So, this morning I want to pull the whiteboard out again here. Because I want us to not only make sure that we are getting what Paul is saying, but the implications of it as well for us. I'm going to try and move this table. Some of you are probably not going to be able to fully see this, and that's okay. Uh, We will leave it up here at the edge of the platform if you want to come look at it, because if I was sitting in the back, I I would be squinting out of my head. So... My apologies, but let's talk about this for a minute. In 10 verses, Paul uses the word mystery three times. He seems to be like really hung up on this, okay? So let's identify them and pick them apart a little bit. The first one, he says, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations. I know that many of you in this room, still to this day, you secretly love your grammar teachers because of how much you love sentence diagramming. Can I get an amen? Okay, I guess not. Zero amens. Um, When I got to New Testament Greek, that's when I figured out, oh my gosh, that's why we did that sentence diagramming stuff. It's amazing. You can figure out what someone is actually trying to say. Because mystery here, what's it talking about? It's talking about the word of God fully known. And when I read the gospel of John chapter one, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I understand that the word is who? Jesus. That's right. Jesus is the mystery hidden for ages and generations. We move on. Paul says, God chose to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is not just that Christ came, which is not just that Christ died and that Christ rose again, but that it is Christ in you. That you and I now are inheritance of the riches of this hope that we have. And then Paul goes on and he says it again because he says the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. When we read this, we have to ask ourselves, okay, so what are the implications of this? Because this ministry that Paul is describing is now passed on to you and to me. Well, first of all, to make the word of God fully known, this is now on us. Okay? So we have become stewards of the proclamation of this mystery. Paul goes on. He says that God chose to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery. The riches of the glory of this mystery. So because of this, you and I have now become recipients of the riches of this mystery. Gets harder to write when it goes down. Here it is the hope of glory. 
but then the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. The knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Because of this, you and I now understand that we are ministers. Paul started this out by talking about his ministry, but it belongs to us now. We are ministers of the treasures of this great mystery. So what we understand in this is that the mystery of Christ, it is the ministry of the church. It is the ministry of the church that for you and I, as followers of Christ, as the inhabitants of the Holy Spirit, you and I have become the temple of the living God. We are now ministers of this message, ministers of this covenant. The great mystery of Christ is the ministry of the church. And so we understand that we are called to preach and present God's word in all of its fullness to make known all the riches. As Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, the whole counsel of God, we're to make it known. We're to proclaim Jesus Christ, to warn and to teach in all wisdom so that believers stand firm in the faith. Go back to verse four there. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. You know what, friends? The plausible arguments that you and I have to be on the lookout for, they don't come from atheists. They don't. They come from the church. That's where they're coming from right now. Like, hey, don't worry about these verses. Or the wolves are in sheep's clothing. I say this to you to say that you and I, we have to be at one another's door every once in a while, sitting down by one another, in one another's face, keeping each other accountable, walking with each other, pulling each other back from the precipice of sin. And we've got to know the whole counsel of the word of God that we will walk in it, that we will not cast it aside. To cultivate Christ followers who, Paul says, are encouraged in heart, united in love, and fully mature in him. Here's the deal. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have one goal and we have one goal for you as the church and that is fully mature in him. We won't stop till we get there. We're called to preach, to proclaim, to cultivate and Paul says we're called to reach out and share the gospel to the end of the street and to the ends of the earth. The great mystery is that Christ has saved us redeemed us and come to live within us and said, I am sending you out to partner with me for the sake of my kingdom and the good news of the gospel. Now go. Let's pray.
I want to encourage you to just take a moment and pray as we sang earlier. I need you more. Would you ask God this morning, Lord, would you reveal more of yourself to me today? Father, we thank you this morning that you have not only redeemed us, saved us, that you are constantly, graciously, mercifully, you're refining us. And you have chosen to make us stewards of this great mystery that you have come to live within us. Lord, we pray that the hope of the gospel would never become so familiar that we lose our awe and wonder over what you have done for us. Lord God, would you kindle our hearts today? With hunger for you, with love for your church. with sacrificial love for a lost and broken world, Lord. In just a moment, as we respond to the Lord in song, we want to invite you, if you need to come to the foot of the cross or to the steps and make that an altar, Please come. Lord Jesus, in these moments, we pray that you will be exalted and lifted up. Your name is above all names. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.